0: Welcome to a new episode of Latinos Who Tech. My name is Hugo Castellanos. In this podcast, we talk with Latinos working in the tech industry and share tools on how to take your career to the next level. If you're watching the video version of this episode, remember to like the video and subscribe to our channel. If you're listening to the audio version, you can give us five stars on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Feedback is always welcome, so you can write to us at Hello at com. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. This is exciting. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever been to Quachella?
1: I haven't. I How do I describe this? There's a little part of me that just hates doing things when they're popular, not because I don't want to do them. Uh, see, this is one of the things.
0: That's that's fine, don't worry. Okay. I'm um, totally leaving that in. It's okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't. And I never really wanted to because of the hype around it, mm-hmm. which is a dumb reason to not want to join in on something that looks so fun.
0: No, I was curious about it because you're a uh, mm-hmm. native Californian. From... Yeah. So I'm always curious about that because I know people yeah. travel from all over the world and... Yeah. I'm okay. also a unique
1: Californian. I come from a very small town, <laughs> I'm just outside of Yosemite, was never really involved with pop culture. If anything, I think I aged myself a little bit because pop culture got to us maybe four years after it hit everybody else in got major it. cities. But yes, yeah, so it was never something I grew up with or heard about so much. I don't know.
0: Got it. Yeah. Got it. And then your family background, they where are they from?
1: Mexicanos de Jalisco.
0: Mm, Gotcha. Yeah.
1: Yeah. My both my parents are from San Juan de los Lagos, about two hours from Guadalajara. And they've been they immigrated. Oof, my dad was like 16 when he first immigrated to California. And I think don't fact check me on this, because I will be wrong, but I think it was during the Reagan administration that He was able to apply for residency as a. Yeah, the the Amnesty thing, I remember. Yeah. Got his citizenship, got married. My mom came over and they both got jobs working for this family owned hotel business just outside of Yosemite. So they've been there for about 30 years now, 30 plus years. And. Yeah. So my entire, it became one of those things where like se viene uno, se vienen todos. And so my dad brought over all of his brothers started also moving. He moved there with some of his brothers. And now it's very, we're very fortunate to all live within a 30 minute radius of each other, except for one aunt that I have that lives in San Francisco. But that's hardly the case when you hear of families, you know, that that immigrate, they either stay apart in two different countries or moved to completely separate cities so we we have a unique little hub (laughs) just outside of yosemite
0: that's very special i'm glad that you treasure that that's very special i'm used to having and i'm sure you do as well the having that whatsapp group chat yeah and and, and some cousins are in a different time zone and yeah Yeah. that's that's my experience Mm -hmm. like my family is split between the us and spain okay yeah like i always just i know off the top of my head what time is it it's in spain right now and yeah yeah and then oh yeah and it's summer so it's different so yeah you just like <laughs> yeah keep track of that automatically when right. we're all spread out around the world
1: yeah it's particularly important when somebody's birthday comes around so yeah,
0: you gotta wake you wanna, them up
1: at the right time so you just your first sleeping one. schedule uh-huh.
0: yeah you want to be <laughs> the first one you want to make sure you get yeah. it done yeah so tell me a bit about yourself
1: Ooh, where do i start <laughs> I'm so. Before I start, I need to ask you for clarification what first generation means because I don't know if I'm first generation or my parents are first generation if they were the first to immigrate.
0: The way I understand it is Mm -hmm. that first generation are the folks that actually migrate. Okay. And then the second generation are the ones that are born here in the US. So I guess I'm first, you're second. Uh But I think like you're more like 1.5.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Because do you speak Spanish at home with your folks?
1: Yeah, it was like a hard, you have to speak Spanish at home. My grandparents lived with us.
0: I love your folks. I love your folks. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing saddens me most that to meet people Mm -hmm. that are Latino, Latina, and Mm -hmm. they don't speak Spanish. Yeah. That's been my experience a lot of times that I meet people that they, yeah, like their parents are like, yeah, I don't want you to have an accent. So I'm not going to teach you Spanish at all. And mm-hmm. it breaks my heart, yeah. Because it's like you're closing off that part of their culture, yeah. Without asking them, and so it's, yeah. it's
1: no. I agree. Actually, that's a great start right there of my story. So I am one and a half, <laughs> gener- for her, one point five generation Latina. So I was the first generation to be born in the states. I've, given that I was in in Yosemite in you know, a very small public school, I think the idea of having Bilingual education wasn't really a thing there. I don't even know Mm -hmm. if it's really that adopted in the school system yet, but my parents were big on us speaking only Spanish at home. My grandparents both lived with us on my mom's side my entire life. And my mom particularly was very strict about, especially at the dinner table, we have to all speak Spanish. I remember in elementary school, there were several times where I had this one teacher tell my mom during her. Parent teacher conferences that she needed to speak less Spanish at home because it was impacting our ability mm. to be English literate. And I remember a different teacher actually commenting. She was my kindergarten and first grade teacher. And I think I saw her again at some point when I was in fifth grade. And she commented saying, congratulations, I see your accent's gone. And I was so saddened by that. I, it was, I think, the moment where I realized, oh, crap, like I've assimilated. Like I'm, I've completely now I'm at that pl- place where I can totally code switch. And it's hard to acknowledge that where it's like you you can see that divide. But yeah, I am very lucky to be in a fully Spanish speaking household. I will say it's gotten diffused. I'm the oldest of five um, tri- trickling down in the siblings. It's gotten harder to maintain the same level of Spanish literacy just because we've gotten comfortable and my p- grandparents are no longer with us, so it's not as, as big of a requirement as it was when i was
0: younger yeah oh thank you for sharing that that's yeah very similar experiences very similar mm-hmm. experiences I, especially when the younger generation grows up here it's just harder yeah. it's harder to keep it and i think that the generation after yours they're gonna be full-blooded americans that's the best yeah. way to describe it and i find also that At least like, because I lived in California for eight years Mm -hmm. and I find that a lot of people, they feel like, oh no, I'm Californian first. And like American second. It's very, it's like a very particular place in the world. And I think it's fantastic. It's a very different culture. It's a very special place.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: I'm curious on how do you get into biology and STEM? What was the thing that motivated you to pursue a career, especially because you grew up in this very small community? close to Yosemite, I guess it's not cent- the Central Valley, right? Or is it considered the Central Valley as well? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Not really.
1: I think so. It's still, it's an hour from like Merced and Atwater. And those okay. Areas. I think that's gotcha. still kind like, of the Central
0: Valley. Just for the people that listen to this, like, yeah. do you have an idea? Cause people yeah, here in so California, know and, and, right. You'd be surprised. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. People think LA, people think California and they think LA and Baywatch yep. and yes. <laughs> and they think that and then when i tell them that yeah i would go to work with a sweater and a jacket because it's 40 degrees in winter I'm like Here, what yeah. in california <laughs> really yes <laughs> like and we the have fog. seasons yeah yeah, yeah you so have people, to people yeah so like the central valley is this very region of the country again for the people that listen to this that they mm-hmm. don't know that is this region of the state that is very their economy is mostly based on agriculture yep and then you have places where you grew up and it's mostly tourism. You people that go to mm-hmm. Yosemite, to the state parks and things like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I grew up in a small town just outside of the west entrance to Yosemite. So that town is called El Portal is how I grew up calling it. But it, for the sake of this podcast, it's called El Portal. Uh, yeah, it was like population 600. And I think because I grew up in such an environmentally enthusiastic place. I think that inherently gave me a passion for the life sciences. My school system had a partnership with the National Park Service where they took us on field trips like twice a month into the park, explore your backyard type of scenario. And it was like hiking and meditating and climbing. And skiing was actually one of our, our so physical California. education requirements. That's so California. Yeah, no. yeah I'm
0: going to have a program. Let's teach the kids how to meditate. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very
1: yeah I know. It was, very, it was a very hippie town and I loved it. I still loving it through and through. But uh, yeah, so I, I was fortunate enough to have this much interface with the natural world around me and had very supportive teachers that encouraged that sort of inquisitive nature. And so I think that's where I started to adapt this scientist mindset of let's question everything and let's dig a little deeper. When I was around 10 years old, I didn't really think about, you know, what I knew that I wanted to be a scientist, but didn't know what areas of science interested me. I was good at math and I was good at science, but also because I was bad at English at the time. So it was easier for me to be good at math and science. Yeah. And so it was by default, but also I'm just going to own it and say that it was a strength. My, my aunt, when I was around 10 years old, my mom's sister got cancer and she passed away. And I think that's when I don't talk about this often, but I think that's when the idea of going into medicine started to Mm. pop into my head, but I didn't like the idea of being a doctor or going to med school. So into middle school and high school, I still Obviously, these subject areas were my strengths. And I had a biology teacher at the time that that made me really interested in cell biology and like genetics. So that's more of what I was looking into when I went into college and I got my bachelor's in general biology from the University of Laverne. My time there, I was also interning at a nearby graduate school, Keck Graduate Institute in Claremont, California. And that's where I had my first dabble into biotech and pharma and what really launched me into the field that i'm in now and at the time it just seemed like what was easy because it was there and then it ended up being something that i liked and i was actually good at and i like the pace of the industry so yeah now i'm here
0: (laughs) so what's your day-to-day like in your startup
1: Yeah. Uh, so it's variable, I think. To give you, a, I guess, a brief on what I've done in previous jobs and how I went into this job. Um, I think when I first spoke with you, it was my first job in the industry. I was working for a contract manufacturing um, I
0: remember. Yeah, you were company, talking so. about, you had a bunch of questions about being a contractor and switching to full time and yeah. Yeah. how to do that strategy of switching and...
1: Yeah, you actually came around at a very difficult time for me in my career. I was a a pandemic employee. (laughs) I had just finished my master's peak year of the pandemic, right? 2020 in June. I moved to San Diego and I took this job with a CMO. And I was there for two months when I realized it just was not for me. And I didn't think that the industry wasn't for me at the time. I just really was having a hard time with the culture at that company. There was a lot of sexism and locker room talk. And I was scared to quit that job because it was my first job. I'm like, no, you have to keep this for at least a year. Come yeah. on, or like at minimum six months. Like You cannot be quitting after two months. Surprise, I left after four. <laughs> so I, I really had to have a difficult conversation with myself and say, if you start putting up with this stuff now, you're going to continue to do that for the rest of your career. So that's when I was looking into taking an easy out it was like, get a contract role. And it doesn't matter if it's not direct hire and it's not full time mm-hmm. or whatever. And that's around the time I I first came into contact with you. I'm forever thankful for the seven months that followed where I went to Gilead Sciences um, and I was working in analytical development there. There's an am- amazing group of leaders. Actually, a lot of them I came across through your podcast and they're Web of Connections, they have a very good Latino community.
0: Yeah, the power of connections, that's all around us, yes.
1: Yeah. So I spent some time there working in analytical development, basically developing assays that would test the potency of a drug, of a biologic. And after doing that work, it felt a little too routine for me. And I kind of wanted to get back into the grind of process development and It tends to be a different pace from analytical development. I think in most companies, analytical development's a little sleepy and process development's just like insane. Like everywhere I've been at least and from people I've connected with, it just seems to be the energy of the people that are running around like chickens with their heads cut off in the lab are usually Mm -hmm. in PD. So I met somebody who was hiring for a research associate at Fate Therapeutics and they were a very hot commodity at the time. And they were about 200 employees just in La Jolla. And the hiring manager and I really connected. His name's Antonio, by the way. Shout out. He was my first connection that I connected to culturally in my industry, Mm -hmm. in my jobs, or working day-to-day with. And he helped me a lot with overcoming imposter syndrome and owning my identity in the field. What helped you?
0: With the imposter yeah. Syndrome, what helped you? Any specific mm-hmm. advice that just stuck with you?
1: I think from as a manager, he was very open to, okay, as Latinos, we're all very emotional. We carry a lot of feelings. And I don't want to generalize for everybody. Maybe I'm just particularly emotional, but I feel like we're gente con pasión. Like we, we internalize things and we get very passionate about projects and I think for me I was struggling with the dynamic of being this scientist in a field that is so variable and inconsistent for per- self therapy in particular is requires very flexible work schedules and at that time I wasn't really getting weekends and I wasn't getting a lot of time to go visit family and I had my grandpa pass during that time and so I was struggling with a lot of personal things that mm-hmm made it harder to be at work and to feel like I was being a a good researcher, supporting my team. And I think him creating space for me to digest all those feelings, which was absolutely not his responsibility as a manager, made me feel like, okay, it's okay to bring this side of myself to work. And I was having a conversation about this with my brother actually earlier this week. I, I think a lot of the times in any industry, you're really inquired about what you can bring to the table and what you can offer and what your skill set is, but you're never really asked about your story. And I think this Mm. is the 1st coworker, colleague boss that I had where I felt like I could bring some of my baggage, if you will, to the table as well and be like, this is why I'm off these last few weeks. It's because Mm. I'm feeling imposter syndrome and I miss my family and I'm very family oriented. I grew up in a house with nine people in three bedrooms and i'm feeling a lot of sorts trying to just collect life after that um or catch up with life okay. like i'm delivering at work it, it, a lot of things you just mm-hmm. feel messy and discombobulated and i think you try to leave that at home and not bring it to work but it comes with you sometimes and yeah, i think it's created it's about being
0: authentic being authentic yeah. bringing your whole self and Yeah, I hate to break it to you, but it just means having a good boss, having a good manager, having somebody that's empathetic.
1: Yeah.
0: And That's part of the requirement, like knowing that, hey, (laughs) if you are not right, you're not going to perform. Right.
1: Exactly. You
0: need to give yourself space and time. And a good leader will know that about their team. Yeah. And the team will support you. But again, I understand that not everywhere is as safe. Mm-hmm. They don't encourage you to do those things. But yeah. but when you find a place that they actually do that, mm-hmm. stay there as much as yeah. you can, as much as <laughs> yeah. you can grow. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, it's, it's special. It's special when you find a place there where you can be, bring on, bring your authentic self to work every day. That's, right. Those places are special. There are far and, and few in between. Yeah. So hang really on if you can.
1: everything. Yeah, definitely. No, and my entire team was very simple. I think we did have a very good, solid group of people that, we were working anywhere from fifty to sixty hours a week and it was very hands-on oh, yeah. and very labor intensive. And so I think that adds on to, to the stress that might be going on in, in life. And I think we all got very vulnerable with each other. And yeah. they're now their friends, chosen family now, even though we don't work together anymore. So I, I think that definitely shaped me in in my career and for my next position. So I was there for about what, a year and nine months or so. Mm-hmm. And my day-to-day there was just cell culture from the morning to the evening. Things got a little bit better in the last nine months that I was working there. We The company bought a new building. They expanded to 500 employees. So we our work dynamic was a little bit different. There were still very intense timelines and still labor-intensive, but we had a little bit more people to manage the work. Ultimately, I Had to part ways with that position. And so I started looking for a new job and got a new position in December. Was lucky enough to start with Replay, where I'm at now. And they are, Replay is a company with their hands in a lot of different areas. But I'm particularly working with a team that's helping develop a hypoimmune platform. So to talk a little bit about the cell therapy side, I'm sure you're familiar with hearing about autologous versus allogeneic therapies cell therapies that are derived from the patient versus those that are
0: yeah i'm mean, not, or donor not derived. Really familiar with that okay but maybe you can give us like a primer on what problem are you trying to solve
1: yeah and yeah.
0: for who are you trying to solve this mm-hmm. Is this something that's going to help the drug manufacturers is this something yeah. that's going to help patients yeah so those two things what problem are you trying to solve and for who
1: yeah okay so the Primary candidates for what I've worked for are it's oncology, so different types of cancers that that what we try to treat with cells of the immune system. Any off-the-shelf product essentially is either derived from a donor and administered to the patients. It ha- has higher throughput, and I guess more manufacturing processes can be going on concurrently before it gets to clinical. Economist um, so of that's scale. A you
0: can make more yeah. material with the same exactly. process and... Okay.
1: Yeah, so it's beneficial in the sense of time and cost. Definitely, one of the caveats to having something that's donor-derived or off-the-shelf is the patient might experience like hyper immune response to a foreign object or a foreign substance. So I think this is where this project that I'm working on comes into play: is developing synthetic proteins that can be expressed on the surface of some of these off-the-shelf products or donor-derived products, so that they evade the host's immune system, so they're not rejected. So it's another layer to developing complex therapies that can be accepted by patients without, I guess, having them their immune system kind of take over and attack the therapy that you're administering. So my day-to-day now, to go back to the question you asked a while ago, is quite a bit of cell culture still, but I'm developing assays that test the function of some of these synthetic proteins to see if they are capable of inducing protection against either macrophages or NK cells. So just different cells of the immune system. And it's really out of my scope, which is why I'm struggling to to describe a lot of this too. I, it's a good experience for me, for sure. It's a lot more R&D style than I've had training for before. So it's, yeah, it's, I'm putting myself in a very challenging position, but I'm learning a lot. And my day-to-day is still a lot of cell culture doing quite a bit of assay development on the side too. So I feel like it's brought in experiences from all of the previous jobs I have had.
0: So are you in a lab environment most of the day? Or Mm -hmm. are you like split 50-50, building the, growing the cell cultures and analyzing data? Like how do you split Mm -hmm. your day?
1: Yeah. In and out of the lab and to to my desk all day. But I do try when I can to to coordinate my day so that I get my cell culture done in the morning and then Mm -hmm. do my data analysis and planning experiments and whatever in the afternoon. Sometimes it gets difficult to really standardize my day-to-day because you're working at the discretion of the cells, which I know sounds Mm -hmm. ridiculous. They are the bosses ultimately. Like if they are ready to be passaged or they're ready to be used in an assay, you might not have another window to get that done, or you could be affecting their health viability, phenotype, whatever. There, There's like biological sensitivity to what we do sometimes, which is why I really don't have a strict routine. It has to always be flexible.
0: You're curing cancer so that's eventually like it boils down to that i know that is one piece of a huge project but that's the goal eventually right do treatments and therapies that can help people thank you for doing that that's amazing that's amazing (laughs) yeah and i what i really love about your story is the fact that you realize that hey like i i could never be a doctor like I'm sure you could if you wanted to but mm-hmm. it's not the it's not the niche area that matches your work style what you like yeah so you but you found your niche in mm-hmm. the sense that okay I love the data I love working in a lab I love mm-hmm. this fast-paced environment uh and you found a spot that's perfect for you
1: yeah yeah definitely You yeah, know, I think I I have found a niche for myself where I'm feeding off of the curiosity to solve a research problem, but also have some sort of predictability. (laughs) And then in the sense that I know what project aims we have or what the ultimate goal of, of developing these assays is, and but still including some wiggle room. I think the problems that I've had with, not problems, but some of the things that I wanted to shift away from when I left other roles was too much monotony. And I think now I have a little bit more diversity in what I'm doing. And we might pivot from one week to the next on what's the priority, whether it's working on this experiment or we need a shift to shift to this other initiative because it's where the funding is coming from, which is an um, aspect of working with a startup too, is that's going to change often. could mm-hmm. come in with one project in mind, but if that's not what's going to bring in funding, then that needs to go on the back burner for a little bit. So you might need to
0: oh, yes. feel a little bit. It's all about the runway and- the- yeah. How much money? How much time do we have to solve this problem? How fast we can build uh, an MVP and a minimum viable product, and right. and then you have to shop around and show off, like, "Hey, we were able to solve this. Please mm-hmm. give us more funding so we can
1: yeah, yeah.
0: keep the lights on you know, yeah. somehow."
1: Yeah, um, and I think that's also what's I guess for me difficult to grapple with in the sense that what caught me into this field was and. If you go back to the beginning of my story, initially was a passion and an eagerness to help patients. And even though this is a patient-centric industry, a lot of the time, you know, these are just great research projects that stay research projects. And I think the biggest bottlenecks, at least with what I've learned so far and from hearing people with a lot more experience than I have, it comes more with the manufacturing and regulatory agencies, right? Like- Mm. Cell therapy isn't necessarily new in it as a research topic. It's well researched, but it is harder, I think, from what I gathered in my experience at Fate to to establish processes that meet manufacturing compliance or from a regulatory perspective. I've never worked in regulatory before, but I can see why there might be pushback from the FDA to try to standardize some of these products because it's not, it's not as repetitive and consistent Mm -hmm. as something like a protein that you're working with live systems. And so I think it's harder to characterize and, and yeah, have like good release specs and criteria and just normalize altogether. And so I think it, the fact that those are the bottlenecks make it difficult for me to See how you just said, yeah, you're helping cure cancer, and I, and in my head, I'm like, I'm absolutely not, because there's so much left to do before this even gets to a patient, and I think that's part of what I, I think I have to, yeah, deal yeah. with on, it, it, on a personal. It,
0: sound, it, it sounds like it's a daily struggle for you. Yeah, like it, it sounds <laughs> like something that is very much present in in your day to day, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think maybe because I'm thinking of that personally, I don't know if a lot of people that end up in the like uh, the startup culture and in R&D are very passionate about the science and yes i'm passionate about the science but i'm also passionate about executing and mm. that means thinking at the, towards the finish line and I, I think that's where it gets difficult is you're either at a company that's focused on de- delivering clinical product or you're satisfying your scientific curiosity but mm. you're focused to to deliver in clinical isn't going to happen for another five or 10 years
0: so that's the big divide between people mm-hmm. that are working in biotech like you mm-hmm. and people that are software engineers yeah that we can just get a bunch of pizza and coffee and
1: <laughs> make a
0: new app in a weekend yeah. and launch it and then yeah. millions of people download it and it's like a- yeah no, you have to go through the FDA and then the trials, and there's the test it on rats, test it on humans, yeah. test it on monkeys, test on whatever. And you know, yeah. it's a different environment altogether. Yeah. yeah.
1: I think so. That's actually something that's unique about my team. We have, we started with our foundation and our backbone being a group of brilliant computational biologists that do exactly what you just described, right? Like their timelines can happen a lot faster where they're just developing or designing these synthetic proteins computationally, but to get the biology to cooperate takes years. And we're not working with years (laughs) when you're trying to get funding in six months. So my group is interdisciplinary in that sense where we have, yeah, the computational side, but then we also have a group of cell biologists that are trying to bring this into reality and see how these designs actually act mm-hmm. in a biological system. So it's interesting working with the two mindsets as well.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you, you have to be very patient as a person, like You you have to be very much in agreement with having a delayed reward. Yeah. Does that, okay, we're doing this experiment. Mm-hmm. We're probably not going to get anything out of it for weeks months Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe the impact out there in the Mm -hmm. wild we're not gonna we're probably never gonna see it it's like you have to be okay with that you have to be okay with the it reminds me to that that neil degrasse tyson quote that sometimes it's not about the answers Uh, sometimes you just have to love the questions themselves
1: yeah
0: or something like that that you Mm -hmm. just have to especially like people that are hardcore research you yeah. just love the questions and, and as an engineer to me is like, what i get it but dude like i need the answer i need, I need the execution I need, the, yeah. I need the practical application i need to touch the damn thing
1: yeah no i get you i think there's a side of me that thinks that way too where i just want a definitive answer and i have to check with myself and be like natalie no that's not how it works there is no absolutes yeah. in biology and in life science like we we might know something now that won't be relevant five years from now. New research will come up inevitably and mm. it'll maybe contradict what we're finding now. And so I, I think I I do have to talk myself down into that reality often because like you, I think I would be a much happier person if I just had a yes or no.
0: <laughs> yeah, but what we were talking about in the beginning then, be with that in in our lifetime the median number of jobs we're going to have is 12 jobs yeah. so who's to say that maybe your next job you'll be at the FDA approving these things or you'll be at the patent office reviewing plants and design systems or stuff like that or yeah maybe you'll be like you know what let's take this lab down to Panama or mm-hmm. Honduras or somewhere yeah. where the government helps us and there's not so much regulation to yeah. actually do our research who knows like i, I saw yeah. that thing about the, i think mel gibson's dad or something that he he went through some stem cell research therapy in panama because yeah it's the one place where he could get it and i'm gonna vote with my money so I'm yeah i'm just gonna go wherever i can get the treatment it sucks for the common person yeah but if you have <laughs> the means like why not So so and again like this is a podcast about careers in STEM and mm. how do people navigate their career. So mm-hmm. it makes me wonder that if you see those tendencies tendencies. Tendencies is a hard word. Sorry. In you, maybe yeah, maybe it's time to switch again.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think I've been itching for a season in my life where I can yeah, explore maybe I'm getting tired of the bench. <laughs> yeah. And it's frustrating that it's so early because so many scientists like do it for yeah. 20 years. But then I just I know that if I'm finding out this early it's f- probably for a reason and I can find more success elsewhere. And I still this it's what's troubling is I still really like the data I get from working at the bench and being able to have a peek into what's happening with live systems, but maybe there's a chapter in my life where I'm supposed to be contributing to generating these data sets and maybe there's a time in my life where I have to step away from them but learn about mm-hmm. how these can be conducive to something else or Just making, maybe working more towards the finish line, like you said, either regulatory or yeah, something else. Um, But it's never above me to explore. Yeah, who knows? Maybe next time we talk, I'll be in Panama working on (laughs) Melkison stem cell (laughs) transplants. Like
0: I feel like you owe it to yourself. Yeah, Uh, if you have that pool telling you that, listen, I love the job, the day to day, Mm -hmm. I really enjoy it, but there's a big piece that's missing because yeah you have these uh, there's that cliche saying that you have only you have only one life like oh you have 12 lives <laughs> like you're a different person every decade yeah. every eight years you're like a different person just reinvent mm-hmm. yourself yeah who's to say that you can just go to a data science boot camp learn data and now you're a computational biologist yeah so there's this person i want you to meet i'll drop them, mm-hmm. i'll drop it in the chat yeah. he's a data scientist at a therapeutic startup in boston Uh, So he's one of those guys that does Uh synthetic proteins and CRISPR and stuff like that. Yeah. So so I would like you to meet him. And he's been to the podcast before. So he's a great guy, super open Mm -hmm. to mentor other people. So
1: this is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You've never failed me with connections. So this is a great one to jump on. (laughs) That's what
0: I do. He went to this Uh little school. It's called Harvard or something. I don't know. It's like a small college. It's a private college, a small (laughs) yeah yeah so we know that so patience is a big skill to have when you're going the biological sciences what would you say are some of the other skills that or traits that like a young latina latino should develop to be successful in stem yeah besides patience
1: <laughs> i think curiosity is the biggest force for mm-hmm. being successful it goes back to the point you made earlier, you have to be more passionate about the question than the answer, I think, to be successful. And I think that inherently yields patience. For most people, not for me, I'm still very impatient. But if we're talking about like the Latino characteristics that make you successful in STEM, I think that's where I want to focus is what do we inherently already have in us that make us successful in this area? I think the ability to code switch is something that maybe we don't pull on often enough or we don't think about that we think that we're doing. It just happens naturally. But when you're working in STEM or biotech life sciences, you're always having to tier to a completely different audience, right? I think it's very powerful to... I, so the people that I admire the most are people who can shift their conversation from very dense science mm-hmm. to very watered down science. So it's still scientific and technical. Oh, yes to business-minded people. And I think that those folks tend to be the most successful when they know really how to shift, which is something very strangely difficult to come across in biotech. I've met more people that tend to hover around the, let me overcomplicate this and sound as intelligent as I can, but nobody knows what you're saying. Like very jargon filled <laughs> conversations, unnecessary
0: yeah, like details, not a, yeah. n- not enough analogies, or yeah,
1: yeah, and it's a very egotistical way I think to lead and communicate with people because it's focused around the how much do I know, not how much can I teach you, or how much can we talk. Mm-hmm. It's not very collaborative. So I, I think you got it. Latinos inherently are you're always switching from the okay, right now I'm a sobrina man, I'm gonna be my sobrina self, and I'm and then now I'm a big I'm putting out of my big sister hat, whatever. And then your professional side and your English comes out and whatever code, you know, you're switching between. But Mm -hmm. I think it's a skill that we just have already naturally because we're existing in multiple worlds within families and personal life and then work and school. And I think that it's something that you could really use to your advantage in STEM. If you take it with the approach that you want to be able to connect with as many people as possible. Um, That's one. It's another skill to have. if I can think of another
0: one <laughs> yeah no but that was fantastic that's yeah. exactly what I was looking for yeah no mm-hmm. co- code switching is something that we take for granted the fact that because yeah. we have to do it constantly and I find that working remotely it's it takes a toll it takes a toll yeah. because yeah. back before when Actually, I would commute to the office and be at the Mm -hmm. office and then I log out for work and I'm done and that's it. But now that I have these interruptions throughout the day, okay, I have my lunch and then I work and then maybe I have to catch up in the evenings with a late call or something like that back and forth. It takes uh, takes so much energy and I don't think it's healthy to do it like for long periods of time. Yeah. So, So finding a place where you can be your whole self, whatever it may look like. Even if the pay is not that great, but hey, at least like I'm, I can be myself. Like, yeah. like, maybe that's the value prop. Because yeah, there's this book that I'm a huge fan of. It's called It's called What Color Is Your Parachute? Have you okay. seen that book before?
1: I think I've seen it around. I've never read it.
0: Gotcha. It's this one,
1: one of my mentors told me to read it a while ago. So she's going to call me out for this.
0: <laughs> gotcha. Oh, really. Yeah. So he has a Udemy course and it's really good. Um, mm-hmm. you, you can probably do the course like on a Saturday. Like it's like a hour and a half course. It's not that long, Uh Uh, but he talks about the intersections on your career. You have several things. Like you have, I think it's five things you have what kind of problems are you solving, what kind of people are you working with, which skills are you using, how much money you're making and Mm -hmm. where do you actually live? So is those intersections, those five things. Yeah. That's what makes your career. So, like, maybe you are making, maybe you're not making a lot of money, but you are living in the place where you love living. You're working with people you enjoy working with. You're using the skill sets that you want to use. So, yeah. So you look at, okay, so which of these five things do you value more? Yeah. Make sure that the top two, like, you're meeting them. Yeah. So yeah. So it's an exercise on finding from those five which ones are a match for you right now. Yeah. And the idea is that you do it like every five years or so. Just mm-hmm. to checkpoint, am I still yeah. in the right place? No? Yeah. Okay, let's start looking. But mm-hmm. treat but really it like something fun. Yeah. It's, it's Because again, it's your life. You should have some fun while you're at
1: it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what advice do you have for... I feel like we're in a culture that's chronically optimizing, right? It's mm-hmm. okay. We, I got the house. I got the location. I got the pay. Now I just need to get the culture. So my next move is to find the culture. So we're constantly trying to have it all. What advice do you have for stepping away from that mindset where you're okay with compromising some things or how do you prioritize what's the most important to you at this time in your life and be okay with sacrificing the rest?
0: Stop comparing yourself to other people. Mm -hmm. That's the big thing. So leaving social media for me was a huge thing stop I stopped using it as a tool to distract myself yeah so I stopped looking at oh yeah look at my friend that just went to Bali or oh look at my friend that is in Italy right now and oh look at my friend that's a digital nomad and backpacking Mm -hmm. through Europe and because I think that when I was younger Mm -hmm. I was comparing myself to other people and it almost felt like a performance piece yeah to show off oh these are all the cool things I'm doing Mm -hmm. and and it's not healthy Yeah. It's not healthy. Like it's it's cheesy, but you should compare yourself to who you are, who you were the day before. Yeah. And then you do that for enough days in a row. And guess what? You're going to become a better person. Yeah. So finding what do you actually care about. Like when I lived in Silicon Valley, I cared about doing all these events and networking and getting those promotions and climbing that ladder and making money and then pandemic happened and it's oh wait none of the things that kept me here are s- still going on none of right. the events like going to the beach and the beach is closed oh my mm-hmm. god what the hell <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> really okay. yeah. and i'm like okay uh, okay time to okay ciao california you've been great i'll see you in a few years yeah yeah so i switched to a place where i i'm back home in florida and i feel Great, because I feel Mm -hmm. I can be my whole self here.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm not the only one with an accent here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's really good. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's the big one for me. Stop comparing yourself to others. You can look at other people for inspiration. You can look at other people for advice in the sense of, Hey, you're working at this amazing startup that Mm -hmm. does this, that solves this problem that I really want to solve. How do I get in there? What worked for you? Yeah. But you need to do the hard work first on what do you actually want? Like, if it's important for you to be in a place where you're not the only Latina, then stalk some Latinas in LinkedIn and find out where (laughs) they work and ask them, like, how do you feel about where you are? Are you Mm -hmm. the only one? Or like, actually look for people that look like you. Yeah, And and that's a, one of the reasons why I do this podcast is because I want to build this index of people that look like me and they talk like me, and that they work in tech. And yeah. I don't care if they work at Google or Facebook or in life sciences or these things. Like it's people that are like, for us, it's more about being Latino first and then working in tech. So it's Latinos who tech. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the way I look at it. It's finding out what you want first. Finding out what you want yeah. first. I like that yeah and yeah comparing yourself to other people that's yeah that's not the way that's not the yeah. way because i also thought that i wanted to have the huge house with a huge backyard and now like i and it's funny because like we we watch the remodeling shows or stuff like that mm-hmm. and it's like wow that house is gorgeous and then i'm with my wife and i'm like <laughs> we're gonna clean that house. What are we gonna do? Like a five-bedroom house, and then, and then, yeah, I think these these three, three, we're fine. Like with this three-bedroom, three-bedroom, yeah, we're perfectly fine. It's only the you two know? of us, and whenever we like host people, like it, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, like buying a house is a good exercise for that too, because (laughs) there's so many offers and looking at what do you value? We wanted to have a walkable neighborhood. We got Mm -hmm. it. We wanted to be able like a short commute to downtown 15 minutes away. So Mm -hmm. close to the airport, it's 10 minutes away. So we found the place, but it was tough because we have to have the conversation with each other of, okay, what do we value? What's important to us? Sometimes something very helpful is going completely negative what definitely what's the thing that you don't want yeah sometimes if you get stuck in i don't know what like i don't know what i want okay what don't you want yeah like hell for me would be working at a bank like having 8 a.m in the morning wearing a tie every day oh my gosh (laughs) yeah like i get like goosebumps thinking about it so that's that's another direction you can take you know, the like,
1: elimination diet for life kind of thing uh-huh, or, uh-huh.
0: that, that's a good yeah. starting point just like writing yeah. things down and revisiting them just every mm-hmm. so often yeah. yeah that's the advice for me from me at least like uh, to find out what you want and like this book i recommend it like i know that oh yeah read this book it's, it's a lot of work so yeah, I'm a book,
1: tarea. <laughs> see
0: you said but, uh, but the, the course is pretty good it's like an hour and a half and you mm-hmm. walk away from it with like, these tools yeah, and, valuable
1: self-awareness.
0: Uh, yeah, no, self-awareness is key. I think I <laughs> you know, like sometimes you just don't want to be self-aware. Sometimes you just want to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's helpful. It's helpful. Do that. Check in with yourself and okay, yeah. am I doing the right thing? Okay. So I want to be respectful of your time. And I'm curious on what like if you could travel back in time and talk with 18 year old Natalie. What advice do you have for her?
1: Oh, gosh. I think she did everything right. I really can't go back. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. It's. I feel like I am doing that being the oldest of five. I feel like I'm constantly looking back at 18-year-old me, Mm -hmm. right, With when I'm having conversations with my siblings. I think growing up as the oldest and from an uneducated household, I always felt pressure to be super successful at everything. And I don't think I took it easy enough. So I would use my dad's words and just say word, take it easy." one word, thick it easy. it easy, easy.
0: Man, that's like at that uh, yeah. That's like at that in your show, easy.: Yes,
1: yeah. <laughs> take it easy. yeah, my my siblings are under that same pressure, so I think that it just it seems to be a cultural thing. I think if I were to go back and talk to myself, I would say to breathe and take a gap year and mm. maybe explore life a little bit more. Because I I think that might contribute to why I have this like chronic need to to hop and see what the next best thing is. And no, this is a fit. No, this isn't. And it's not because the opportunities I have and have had aren't a fit. It's maybe just because I need to step away from it for a second. I I had this conversation not too long ago too with some friends. I, I think that I Have struggled so much to accept that I might need to step away from science or biology in specific or like working in the life sciences because it's become so much of my identity. Most of my Mm. friendships in college and before that, I was kind of the only biologist in the group. So science just was like, that's Natalie's thing with my friends. Now that I have made friends in science and that's not the abnormal thing, it's the thing that keeps us together. We're all in science and it's a common shared quality. It doesn't really seem to be like the thing that sets me apart. And so I think it's a bit relieving now to to find an identity in other things that might not necessarily be around this one thing that I've made more stressful than enjoyable oftentimes. So, I think if I could go back, I would say those two things, Yeah to take a break, and don't be afraid to take a pause and move to Costa Rica for a year and or whatever, and then to not attach your identity to a profession. I think that would be another thing I'd tell myself.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your time. Thank that, you. Uh... And if you want to connect with Natalie, I'm leaving your LinkedIn in the show notes so people can reach out to you. And if they have questions about life sciences or careers in your space or moving to Costa Rica for a year and exploring <laughs> yeah. with some zip lining, playing with the monkeys and stuff. No, but thank you so much. Uh, I'm really happy thank
1: to have this conversation with you. Thank you.